Gospel, chapter 10. Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Just read a few verses together. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, reading from verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And then he gives a few more instructions and uh, talks about a couple of cities. If they reject, what would happen to them? And then on down to verse 16. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. But particularly verse 6, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Uh, Jesus, made, Jesus made it very, very clear that he expects us to share our faith. Freely we have received, freely give. Harvest truly is plentiful, it's the labors that are few. Now, for some, sharing their faith is as natural as talking about the weather. But for others, for many others, it doesn't come quite that easy. It doesn't just trip off the tongue. Of course, there are some who are called to be an evangelist. That's the office and the gift of evangelist, uh, part of the five-fold ministry gifts that Christ has given to his church. And they stand in that office that's their specific calling and gifting. However, that does not say that that's just for them. As far as evangelism is concerned, as far as reaching others with the message of the gospel, it's for every believer to share their faith. And so, when and where we can, we shine our light and we gossip the gospel. Jesus, in sending out these 70 laborers into the harvest field, gives them a priceless piece of advice. It's advice that all of us could do well to heed and to listen to, and I think that we could find it most helpful. Verse 6, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Now, if there is someone with a bad quality or a good quality, the Jews would often say that they are the son of it. For example, Jesus said that Judas was the son of perdition. You remember whenever James and John, his disciples, wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. He called them Boanerges, sons of thunder. They were the son of it. And of course, we know that Barnabas was the son of consolation. 
Even Jesus one time, uh, in a very derogatory way, uh, the Pharisees accused him of being the son of Belial, a worthless fellow, a son of. And so this was a, a term that was used very, very often. So Jesus was saying to the 70 who he sent forth, wherever you go, look for a son of peace. Look for a man of peace. Look for a peaceful man. In other words, somebody who is receptive and open and amenable to the message of the gospel. Not everybody's going to be. He made that clear. In fact, if you read on in that chapter, the bit that we left out, you'll see that there's some places he says, when you go and they reject you, he says, go out and shake the very dust of your feet and move on. So not everybody's going to accept the message that we share, but there will be those who will, and who will be ready to hear, and who will be open and receptive and amenable, if only we do share. So somewhere out there in the workplace, the factory floor, or in the office, or at university, or college, or school, or among your family and friends and relatives and acquaintances or neighbors. Somewhere out there, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a boy, there's a girl who will be open and receptive. There'll be a son of peace, as it were. And they will listen and hear what you have to say regarding the gospel. Everywhere Jesus went, he found people like this. The Sanhedrin was uh, a group of 71 uh, religious elders, as it were. And they sat in judgment, things regarding the law and uh, the lifestyles of people in Israel. And so they were the highest religious court in the land, could we say. And they were implacably opposed to the Lord Jesus. They despised him. And they did everything in their power uh, to denigrate him and to put him down and to try to uh, deny his power and, and, and his messiahship. And even in the end, of course, when it came to his trial, they were, uh, they were very vitriolic against the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in spite of all of that, there was two among them who were men of peace, who were sons of peace. Nicodemus was one. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night asking about spiritual things. Although he didn't know very much about spiritual things as, as we find out as we read the story. Uh, at least the, the deep spiritual things. But he was anxious to know. And he was a, a, a secret admirer, if you will, of the Lord Jesus. And of course we know about Joseph of Arimathea who... Um, Jesus was buried in his tomb, another member of the Sanhedrin, another one who never came out of the closet, as it were, and owned Christ until he died. And uh, so Jesus found men of peace everywhere. Jairus, the Bible says, was a ruler of the synagogue. And you would think that Jairus would be a man that, again, would not be a son of peace as far as Christ was concerned. Uh, because again, uh, Jesus was always getting in trouble in the synagogue and the rulers of the synagogue by and large did not want him around the place. But Jairus was different. Jairus came to Jesus. 
Sometimes you don't have to find a son of peace. Sometimes they find you. The woman at the well, of course, is another classic example. Jesus said to his disciples, I must needs go through Samaria. And I I can imagine the disciples talking among themselves, saying, Samaria? Did he actually say we have to go through Samaria? Sure, they hear us. And the feeling's quite mutual, actually. Samaria, those despise Samaritan, we have to go through Samaria? Yes, we've got to go through Samaria. Why? Because Jesus had a divine appointment ready set up, although she didn't know, but it had already been set up. And Jesus would meet that woman at the well. And you know the story very well indeed, what he said to her. The thief on the cross. Who would ever have thought that the thief on the cross would have turned out to be a son of peace? Whenever those people at the bottom of the cross, those crowds were shouting up at Jesus, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross, prove it. The Bible says that the both thieves, the left and the right hand side of Christ, both of them cast the same in his teeth. Both of them agreed and shouted, if you are the Son of God, come on, save yourself and us. But then, before Christ breathed his last, in that period of time, one of those thieves began to change. He watched and he listened Jesus. And he saw the tenderness of Christ to his dear mother. And he saw that heart of forgiveness. And he saw all those things. And the sun that refused to shine those three hours of darkness. And in between that time when he first reviled Jesus and at the last he changed, he became a son of peace. And he says, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. What a change came into his life. Apostle Paul found him everywhere he went to. Philippian jailer. He didn't know he was about to become a son of peace. He was just doing his job. He was the jailer. He just locked them up, gave them something to eat maybe once a day. What did he care about any of them? They're all a bunch of criminals. But he didn't know that his life was about to be radically changed. He didn't know that when Paul and Silas come into his prison, that his life was going to change forever and his whole family. And he became a son of peace, a man of peace. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) What a dramatic change came into his life. And then, of course, in that same chapter of the book of Acts 16, there's that lovely story. In fact, if you want to turn with me just for a moment or two. Just prior to the incident that caused Paul and Silas to be imprisoned,
In verse 6 of chapter 16 of Acts, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Asia Minor, that is. Notice it says, and when they had gone through. Who's the they? The they is Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's who the they is. And so they had gone out on this second missionary journey. And no doubt they had meticulously planned it. They knew exactly where they wanted to go. Uh, Paul always had a heart to go places where no man had preached before. And so they mapped the route. But as they set out, they discovered that where they wanted to go at that time was not where the Holy Spirit wanted them to go. Isn't it strange? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia Minor. That's unusual, isn't it? And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Now, Paul, being a deeply spiritual man, would realize fairly quickly, if the Holy Spirit is not allowing us to go here, he must have a good reason. So we need to listen and be directed by the Spirit. Something's going on. I'm not quite sure what he would be thinking, but the Spirit's speaking, and he's leading, and he's directing. Now, the area that they had planned to go was Asia Minor, was Ionia, Aeolia, and Lydia. That was the area that they had planned to go. But those were the places the Holy Spirit says, no go. Can't go there, I'm sorry. Not at this time at least. So the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the, they had seen the vision, Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So when he got this vision of this man saying, come and help us, he knew immediately, ah, that's what the Holy Spirit was saying. He doesn't want us to go there, he wants us to go there. He doesn't want us to go east, he wants us to go west. And so he followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, sailing from Troas... We ran a straight course to Samothraci, and the next day we came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, a Roman colony. Now, Troas, I, does anybody ever look the maps in your Bible? I suspect not. But if you did, and you looked in the map in your Bible, you'd see that Troas was very close. In fact, it was just across the sea, about 150 miles to where Philippi was. And so it was only like a two or three day boat trip, which wasn't a lot to get to where the Holy Spirit wanted them to go. And it was at this port of Troas that where they got the vision. And so Paul got the vision, I should say not they, but Paul got the vision and instructed by the Spirit and that's where they headed for. And of course, then when they got there, they got the vision, and then they made sail and got to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. 
Now, everywhere Paul would go, first thing he would look for all over the Roman Empire where he traveled was a synagogue. Jews were scattered everywhere. And so it was to the Jew first. He was apostle to the Gentiles, but to the Jew first. So he'd find a synagogue, he would teach there, and then he would reach out to Gentiles who lived around and try to win them to Christ. But there didn't seem to be a synagogue here. Maybe there wasn't enough Jews at this time. You needed 10 men to have a synagogue to hold official meetings. But there was a bunch of women, and they would meet down at the riverside. So that was good enough for him. Wherever there was a prayer meeting going, he would be there. And so he went down to this riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. The fact that it says he sat down would imply that he's in a teaching mode, the way a rabbi would do. He's not standing up behind a pulpit. He's sitting down, he's in a teaching mode, and he begins to teach. They spoke to the woman who met there. A certain woman named Lydia heard us. Now Lydia, by the way, well, let's, let's just read a little bit. A woman named Lydia heard us, and the word there means that she intently listened. And she was a seller of purple from the city of Theatira, who worshipped God. Now Theatira was in the region of Lydia. She was called Lydia, for she, she was from Lydia, which is from the city of Theatira. Many, many, many years later, John, writing down the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches was Theatira, but not at this time. And so she was a seller of purple. Now, purple, uh, purple was dyed cloth, and the purple came from a mollusk, from a shell. Pulling my microphone off my ear. It came from a shell and from the madder root. And it was very, very expensive. But it made a beautiful dye. In fact, purple was the color of royalty. And it was very sought after dye. In fact, the Romans loved it. So here is a, a businesswoman. This was her business. And she had been a very successful businesswoman. And she probably moved from Theatira and Lydia. She moved from there to Philippi, this Roman colony, perhaps wanting to expand her business. She was smart. She knew the Romans loved this, and what better opportunity to expand your business to move to a Roman colony and open up? And that's exactly what she did. But she was a worshiper, it says. Somewhere along the line, this woman had bought into Judaism, the religion of the Jews, and began to worship the one true and living God. But she didn't know Jesus. She didn't know Jesus. Probably had never heard of Jesus. But as they, Paul and Timothy and Silas began to share with these women Look what it says. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So here she is, a successful businesswoman. By the way, if you read on in this story, you'll see that after she got saved and her whole household got baptized, she says, listen, why didn't you stay with us? So here are, by this time, by the way, uh, 
Luke had also joined the group because in verse 11 it says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course. So it's not they, it's we now. And who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, Dr. Luke. So he's included. So there's four of them now, plus her, plus her whole household. She must have had a big house, lots of rooms in it, and she could feed them all, and they could stay as long as they want. So here's a very successful businesswoman, a woman of peace, a woman who was searching for the true and the living God and felt that she had found the one true and living God, but she didn't know Christ. But when Paul came along, and here's the what, there's many wonderful things about that story, by the way, but here is a lovely thought to think, that the apostle Paul and his evangelistic team, the Holy Spirit redirected them hundreds of miles from where they had planned to go. Not only from a different country, but to a different continent. Not only from Asia Minor, but actually into Europe. Philippi is where Greece is today. So he moved them from a different continent to reach this one woman because she was a woman of peace. And God saw the heart of this woman who was a true worshiper and realized, hey, she needs to know my son. She needs to be truly born again of my spirit. So I'm going to send these preachers, even from another continent, just to reach this one woman. Isn't God good? But you see how open and receptive she was. Paul found them everywhere. In Acts 16, in Acts 13, he found Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul of Cyprus. We're not going to look at him at the moment. We might look at him a little bit later. Philip, everywhere Philip went, in Acts chapter 8. <laughs> Philip, you know, in Acts chapter 8, this is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon. And here's a man full of the Holy Ghost. And while all the apostles were still stuck at Jerusalem, he's out there of all places He's in Samaria and he's having a wonderful revival. People's getting saved. People's getting healed. Devils are cast out. It's a wonderful city-wide revival. And in the midst of all this great revival going on, suddenly the Lord directs him away from the revival, away out into the desert. Why? Because there was an Ethiopian eunuch and this man had come from Ethiopia. And he was the treasure of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. And he came to, the Bible says here, to worship at Jerusalem. So he was a man of peace. Now, how did a man from Ethiopia know about worship and the one true and living God? Well, some say, you remember the story in the Old Testament, how the queen of Sheba came to Solomon. And some say that she took Judaism back with her to North Africa where the company 100% sure of that but it's very possible then that filtered down to this time when this man lived and he came to Jerusalem to worship after the manner of the Jews and so he came he's on his way back again and what happens Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, 
go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And now as they went down the road they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, he was a man of peace. A man who was searching and looking. A man who was anxious to know truth. And a man who was stuck at a portion of Scripture. Couldn't get his head around it, we would say. And so again, the Holy Spirit takes Philip from a great revival into the wilderness to reach just one person. I think that's wonderful. And if you look at your life and you look back, how did the Holy Spirit reach you? Where did he reach you? When did he reach you? And if I was asked for testimonies this morning, I would find many, many different testimonies of how the Holy Spirit actually reached you. And by whom did he reach you? Who did he reach you through? What way? Was it a tract given to you? Was it somebody sharing the gospel? What happened? And if you look back, you'd find that it was the Holy Spirit who led somebody or for something to happen to your life. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was a man who was a, a pagan Roman and who came to Israel, of course, uh, as a conqueror. But when he was stationed there, he observed the manner of the Jews. And at some point in his life, he too began to think about the one true and the living God. And he too to what extent we're not sure, but he too began to embrace Judaism and began to be a worshiper. And he was very helpful to the Jews and built a synagogue for them and was very amenable to them and did everything he could to help them. But then God saw this man's heart. He wasn't a saved man. He was a good man. He was a generous man. He was a man of peace. He was a man who was searching for truth. He was all of those things, but he wasn't a saved man. But he was open to it. And God came to him through that 
wonderful experience and told him to go and find this man called Peter. He was staying in another town. And Peter, when he heard the news, you know, but Peter, he didn't want to go. For a Jew to go even into the house of a Gentile and to go into the house of a Roman Gentile and to go into the house of a Roman centurion Gentile, well, that was going to take God to work overtime in him. And God had to work overtime in him, didn't he? All of that prejudice, all of that stuff that he'd been brought up with all of his life, God had to cut through all of that and give him that vision of that sheet coming down with all those things that was unlawful for a Jew to eat. Arise, Peter, slay and eat. Not so, Lord. You know that's uncommon. I can't touch that. But then he showed him how that this was for a bigger thing and how these men came looking for Peter just come in at that time. And Long story short, Peter went back and he began to preach. And he just had started preaching and suddenly the Holy Ghost came and fell on them Peter said, when he reported back to headquarters, fell on them as on us at the beginning. And so there was a wonderful thing happened in the house that day. But you see, this was a man of peace. What makes a person, what makes a man or a woman of peace? What draws them to God apart from the gracious work of the Holy Spirit? What draws them to God? What makes them open and amenable and ready to hear the message. Because there's loads of people out there. In spite of what we think. The harvest fields are white, Jesus says. So in spite of what we think. There's loads of people out there. Just waiting for somebody to speak to them. It may be the person you work with. So what makes them amenable? Well, perhaps it's their needs. Jairus that ruler of the synagogue, had a great need. His little daughter was dying. Can't get a greater need than that. Sure you can't. And even though he was a ruler of the synagogue, and even though he knew it wouldn't go down well with the hierarchy, and even though that he knew that this could cause him problems in his religious position, and even though he knew it would maybe even cost him his job as being the ruler of the synagogue. But his need overrode all of those things. And he knew that if he could get to Jesus, there was a great chance that his little daughter would live and not die. And so for that reason, he became a man of peace. His need brought him to Christ. And oftentimes it's people's needs. Oftentimes it's a crisis. Oftentimes it's when there is no other help, when there is no other comfort, when there is no other way. Oftentimes that's when people began to think beyond themselves. And beyond all, all the normal natural help that's gone. And it's an opportunity for them to reach out to Christ. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, he didn't care. He shouted. Even when they told him to shut up and stop shouting and making a nonsense of the thing. That's what they were thinking. He's making a whole hoo-ha here. But he didn't care. 
He was blind. And he knew the man was coming that could heal him of his blindness. And it was a good job he did shout because Jesus never ever passed that way again. It was only going to be his only chance. Now he didn't know that, but he took the chance that he got and he shouted and he shouted until Jesus stopped the whole crowd. And he came over and Jesus touched him. See, oftentimes it's people's needs that drive them into a place where we can share Christ with them and their hearts can become open. Sometimes it's just their search for truth. Like Lydia or Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch or Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. He knew a lot of stuff He knew a lot of religious stuff. He knew a lot of scriptures. But he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know about being born again of the Spirit. Being born from above. Hadn't got a clue. But his search for truth brought him to Christ. And sure he came by night... And sure, he did it because of fear of the Jews. He was in a position, being the member of the Sanhedrin, being caught in that position, talking to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. That was going to be big trouble for him. But nonetheless, he came and he sought out the Master. And there's people out there who are searching for truth. They know stuff, they've done some research. They've read up. They've listened to people. But they're on a journey. And you could be the one who could point them to Christ. You could be the one who could be the last link in that chain. You could be the one who's got the truth that they need to hear. Sometimes it's just curiosity. Lots of people are curious. They're just wondering. What's it all about? Is there life after death? Is this real? Is these people just delusional? Or is there something to this? <laughs> and again in Acts 16, here's this guy, Sergius Paulus, this proconsul. Sorry, Acts 13, beg your pardon. Oh, I'll find it yet. Well, rather than hunt and search for it, it's in the book of Acts somewhere. You can find it later. But let me tell you the story. Got out of that nicely, didn't I? Can't read my own notes. Sergius Paulus, he was a high official. Paul 
standing in his presence. Here's a man who was searching for truth. Here was a man who was curious about the things of God. Paul, standing before him, starts to share the gospel. But also standing there is a man called Elimas. Elimas was a sorcerer. A man who had built up a great reputation. And such was his reputation that this man, Sergius Paulus, had him at his court. So here's a man who's curious about spiritual things, about supernatural things, wondering. And so Paul's starting to share. And as he's sharing, this Elimas is doing his best to try to put Sergius Paulus off from hearing what Paul's saying. And after a little while, Paul had enough of it. And he turned around and rebuked this sorcerer. He told him he was a wicked, evil man. And he says, now, the hand of God's going to come upon you and you'll be blind for a season. And suddenly, in the presence of Sergius Paulus, he was struck blind. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to have been there? And whenever Sergius Paulus heard what Paul had to say, and saw what just happened, it says he believed. He believed. Suddenly, you see, in the midst of listening and seeing, he wasn't just curious anymore. He got the evidence from what he heard and from what he saw, and suddenly he believed. And there's some people who are curious and there's some people who are searching and when they get the truth, then they're going to believe. Sometimes it's people's fear. Sometimes it's people's fear. The Philippian jailer, whenever the earthquake came, and all the doors flew open, which said this other way in another context. Earthquake came, the doors flew open, so potentially all the prisoners could run out and escape. And that meant death for him. In Roman times, if you had the stewardship of prisoners and they escaped, you died. So that's why he ran in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, we're using the term being saved in a different context today. He wasn't thinking, he was just thinking, well, how's my life going to be spared here? But Paul used that and turned it around. And he says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And your house. Here is a man that you never have thought in a million years would have been remotely interested But suddenly, his life is at stake. Suddenly, fear grips his heart, and he's desperately afraid. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and your house. Paul already said before that, do yourself no harm, because the chances are he would have committed suicide rather than be tortured He says, we are all here. 
Nobody's running. Everybody's staying. You're all right. And of course, Paul preached the gospel to him and to his household and they get saved and they get water baptized. By the way, I should say that water baptism, we don't have the facility down here, but anybody gets saved. There's no scriptural reason why they should be waiting for six months or a year to get water baptized. When you read the New Testament, as soon as they get saved, they get water baptized. His household got water baptized. Lydia's household got water baptized. <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch, as soon as he gets saved, what happened? He got water baptized. So they believe in making a public declaration right away. So here this man is, and he's afraid. Is it, is it ever legitimate to use fear in your witness? There's a question. Is it ever legitimate to use fear when you're speaking to somebody about the things of God? Well, in Luke chapter 13... We finish just in a moment. Verse 1 of Luke 13. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans are worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 of whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How would you like to be told that? Huh? And that sound a little bit scary? Sure it was. But Jesus never held anything back. You know, Jesus talked about hell a lot. A lot. You say, well, is it okay for us to do that? If we're sharing with people, I don't mean you just walk up to somebody and say, hey, listen, if you're not saved, you're going to hell. But in conversation, when you get to know people, and they're a man of peace, perhaps, you've got to make them realize there's two places you can go to after this life, only two. And it'll only be one or the other. Then I think that's legitimate. I think people has a right to know if they reject Christ at the end of this life, what their future holds. I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't tell them that at some point. You say, that sounds a bit scary for them. Well, so be it. Better that, telling them and them have an opportunity to put things right. They don't want to wake up in hell and say, nobody ever told me about this place. Jesus wasn't afraid to make it known. Now we'll end with this. The woman at the well. Jesus went out of his way just to reach that one single woman. A woman of reputation, a woman who had five husbands and now she has a live-in lover and Jesus 
was about to become the seventh man in her life. And seven's a perfect number, isn't it? And so Jesus comes. We'll not go through the whole story. You know it well. He begins to share with her. And at the start, she begins to deflect him because he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. She knows the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. She was a bit thrown the fact that he was there and asked her for a drink. But as, she, as he talked on and as she began to open up a little bit, if you read through that story, you can see it changing. Her attitude begins to change. She tries to deflect him at one point and talk about where people ought to worship. And Jesus brought it back again. And then in the end, of course, he tells her about her life. And of course, after he does that, then she is completely and utterly amazed. Verse 16, Jesus says, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Then she goes on talking about where to worship and when Messiah comes and Jesus says, I, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with this woman. Yet no one said, what, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be, could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, you have entered into their labors. And then notice this. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Here was a woman who was searching for reality for a meaning to life. Her life was a mess. She had gone through so much, but she was still searching, and Christ came, and that was the end of her search when she found Christ. She told the men of the city, and they believed her story, and they came to Christ. He spent two days with them and said, now we believe not because of what she said, but because of what he said. There's people out there, and they're searching for reality. They're looking for a meaning for this life. But before you can reap them, you have got to reach them. This woman was ready to be reaped. 
but she had to be reached. That whole town was ready to be reaped for the gospel, but they had to be reached. And the woman was the means of reaching that whole town, and Jesus was the means of reaching her to reach that whole town. Are you still with me? And so, it's amazing what can happen if you just share your faith. Not only with that individual that you share it with, but perhaps with their family or their loved ones or their friends or their workmates. Sometimes it's because of the seed you have sown in their life that will reach somebody else. So, out there, there are men and women of peace. There are people who are waiting, they're wondering, their needs has brought them to a certain situation in life, their curiosity or their search or whatever it may be, but they're just waiting for you to say something. And it can just open up a whole conversation and it can lead them to Christ. You may not be the one actually to lead them to Christ, but you may be the one who puts them on that path even further and somebody else may reap that harvest but you've got to reach them first. Amen? Let's pray.